to speak to us today. Father, we thank you this morning. Father, we stand amazed at your love toward us. Father, that you would love us and save us. Father, we say with the youth choir, the young adult choir, my, 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 that you would love us the way you do. And then, Lord, just to come and to be reminded, Lord, this morning that you are in charge and that you're on the throne. That blesses our heart, cheers our heart today, and we thank you for it. Now, Father, we've come today to get something from you, but we've not only come to get something from you, we have come to give something to you. Bless our celebration services today as we offer our praise and our thanksgiving and worship to you, except from your children today, that which you so rightly, rightfully deserve. Speak to hearts, move in every heart. May this be a blessed hour, an hour in which we meet the Lord in Jesus' name. And for Jesus' sake we pray, amen. Let's sing and worship to the Lord. shake hands and fellowship. Welcome our visitors today.
be seated. Let's let our ushers come forward to receive our offering. And if you are visiting with us today and the ushers gave you a visitor's packet, you'll find on the inside a little guest card. If you'll take that out and just fill it out and drop an offering plate in just a moment, we would appreciate it so much. We'd like to send you some information this week about the church. We want you to get to know us, and we want to get to know you. So we appreciate all of you being here. Good to have several that are visiting with us today and several that I've already met this morning and spoken to personally. Good to have Mary Long back with us. She's a second-time visitor. and She's visiting with the Wilsies that have been coming to be here today and then the Wallace family. Good to have them back again this morning and then several folk that work with Tracy. Good to have them and many, many others. We appreciate all of you being here in the service this morning. Let me just make mention of a couple of things and just want to remind you of these things. As you know, our parking lots are full. We're working on that and got plans, and, of course, things are being developed right now. But we're asking some of you, like young people and any of you that will, uh, if you don't mind, if you'll help us out, maybe park in the lower 40 over here. That's over down by the school. I've been parking over there the past few weeks. But if our young people and uh, some of the uh, healthy ones could park down there, it'll free up some space up here and free up for our visitors that come in. Uh, we're going to be designating uh, handicapped parking and uh, visitor parking in the weeks to come and different things. But if you could help us there and free up some spaces over here, and I assure you that we're working on that. And all of it's right now being handled by a civil engineer. And as soon as we get all that together, we're going to be adding additional parking and different things like that. So be patient. But if you could help us and you wouldn't mind parking down there, it'll free up. Uh, the space up here for other ones. Now, those are good problems. I like those kind of problems, don't you? When we have to beg people to park uh, somewhere else just to be able to have parking spaces, those are good problems, and I'm excited about all the things going on. Uh, we've mentioned two or three times uh, December the 2nd. I want to remind you that it's just a few weeks away. Uh, the rally at the Roundhouse on Sunday afternoon from 2.30 to 4.30 and is showing our support uh, for the posting of the Ten Commandments in the... Uh, buildings here in the Chattanooga area, and we appreciate our county commissioners that are doing this, and uh, they're taking heat, but I know that uh, they're getting a lot more support from it. We have several posters, and uh, just one of these. If you have a business or something like that where you can get those in, pick these up. It's just a rally to support the public display of the Ten Commandments. The Honorable Roy S. Moore, Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, will be there that afternoon. The premiers will be singing. Of course, our choir will be singing as well. And then others that will be there. And this is all churches coming together. And we're really praying the roundhouse will be full that Sunday afternoon. So this is to show our support. But if you can help us get these posters out, we'd appreciate it so much. Take them, put them in your businesses. There's some of them in the lobby back there. And uh, you can get those as you go out today, and we'd appreciate that so much. Let's pray. Now, good to have Kay with us. I forgot Kay. Kay, good to have her home, and uh, always good to have her back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing. Bless the offering today. I pray that you'll continue to move in our service this morning. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Get up, get up, arise, wake up and open our eyes to a world that's lost, that's lost, that's dying and going to hell. Well, there's a commission that we must obey and we should put it off for another day. Well, there's no time to waste, the time is now. Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every nation. 
Well, there are many in the world who haven't heard the plan of salvation. Well, Jesus said he's coming back some wonderful day, and that day is very near. So you better not be griping, because there's people that are dying, and the Lord is what they need to hear. So let's get up, get up, arise, arise, wake up, and open our eyes to a world that's lost, that's lost, that's dying, and going to hell. Mission that we must obey, and we shouldn't put it off for another day. Well, there's no time to waste, the time is now. The time is swiftly passing, and soon we'll see him face to face. Satan's trying to prevent us from sharing God's love and grace. Well, he knows his time is short. He'll do all he can. He will be deceiving to keep people from believing. So let's all take a stand. Let's stand. Let's get up. Get up. Arise. Arise. Wake up and open our eyes to a world that's lost. That's lost. That's dying and going to hell. Well, there's a commission that we must obey. And we should put it off for another day. There's no time to waste, the time is now. Oh, let's get up, get up. and arise. Oh, let's wake up and wake open up our eyes. Open our eyes. Oh, that's lost, that's lost, that's dying and going to hell. Well, there's a commission that we must obey, and we should put it off for another day. There's no time to waste, the time is now.
when I read in the scriptures is what is man that thou art mindful of him what right do we have for God to forgive us of our sins only through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ this old song was written by Rusty Goodman and it just asks a question that I'm asking this morning I just don't know I don't really deserve it but thank God because of his grace I've received it who am I that a king would leave the throne to die for me on Calvary That's the one, Rick. Sorry. It was a pretty melody. I wish I'd written that one. Fight 
Let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, if you would please be finding your place. Psalm 78. I want to express my sympathy this morning to Ronnie Majunkin in the death of his father. His funeral was yesterday. Let's remember Brother Ronnie and all the family. And then also I want to ex ex express my appreciation to all of you that helped us on Wednesday night. We had the Tabernacle Children's Home here. Fourteen of their children that were brought up, and uh, many of you uh, took the children home with you and kept them for the night. And the children, they had a wonderful time. I could tell by being around them when you brought them back how much fun they had, all of them trying to outdo the other. Well, I got to do this, or I ate this, and whatever there. And I could tell by you that you enjoyed having them. They were a real blessing. And I appreciate you that helped us on the Wednesday night. This is Missions Month, and on our Wednesday night services, uh, we're giving emphasis to missions and different ones that are with us. I want you to stand as we honor the reading of His Word. I want you to look at Psalm 78. I want you to notice verse 19. Psalm 78, verse 19. We're looking at questions that are found in the Bible. I'm calling them great questions in the Bible. Here's a question. Verse 19, Yea, they spake against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Now here's the question. Look at the question they ask. Psalm 78. This is a tremendous psalm. And I think you'll understand a little bit before we're through the day. But this is a tremendous question. And one we'll look at. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Thank you. you. may be seated. Let's pray. And let's ask that question this morning. Let's look at that question. It's not so wonderful being asked by the people that is asking it. But there are some wonderful thoughts we'll glean from it today. Let's pray. Father, this morning in Jesus' name, as we have gathered here today, our hearts have already been blessed. You've already moved in our hearts. You've already spoken to our hearts. And for these things, Lord, we are grateful. And for these things, we give you praise. And for these things, we bless your name. And we thank you again, Lord, for all that you've done. Father, we ask you now that you might fill us now with your spirit, that we might bring your word. Because the word of God, if it's to be effective in our hearts, requires more than any human skill or ability. It requires a divine working of God. So I want you to speak to us today. I pray that you'll speak to us as individuals.
But I pray, Lord, today that you'll speak to us as a church, that we'll hear your word to us today, that we'll re receive and realize what you are wanting to say to us today as a congregation as well as an individual. So speak to us now. Open the Word of God to our hearts and understanding, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And for Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. I think about a survey that I came across one time, a survey that stated that 95% of Americans believe in God or believe in a universal force. The survey also stated that 67% of all Americans define God as the all-powerful, the all-knowing creator of the universe who rules the world today. Well, I want to go on public record this morning and say, first of all, that I'm in that 95%. I do believe in God. I believe that God exists. No questions about it. I believe in God. But I also won't go on record today and say that I'm in that 67%. For I believe that God is the all-powerful God. Do you believe that this morning? Say amen. I believe with the Apostle Paul that God is able to do exceeding, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. And I join with the angel that visited Mary in declaring that with God, nothing shall be impossible. Well, as I stated a moment ago, we on Sunday mornings have been looking at what I'm calling great questions from the Bible. We've looked at several, beginning in Acts 16, 30, and the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Then we looked at Psalm 27 in verse 1, and the psalmist asked the question, Whom shall I fear? Then we looked at Job 14, 14 in the question, If a man die, shall he live again? Then we looked at Romans 8, 35 in the question of Paul, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Last Sunday morning, we looked at the question asked by the disciples in Matthew 24, 3, and that was the question, what shall be the sign of thy coming? Today, I want us to look at a question that is almost hard to believe that anybody would ask, especially the people that asked the question in Psalm 78. It is the question that I read a moment ago. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Now, you imagine this morning someone asking if God can. Imagine someone asking if God has the ability to do a certain thing. Or imagine someone questioning the ability of God. For that is exactly what they're doing when they ask the question. And Psalm 78, 19, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? I submit unto you this morning, instead of this being a question, it should have been a statement. Instead of them asking, can God, they should have been shouting, God can. But you find him here asking, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Look at the question with me. Now, I want you to look at the question as well as the context in which it is asked. And I want you to notice about three things with me this morning. I believe there will be a blessing. I believe God will use them to speak to our heart. The first one is this. I want you to think with me, first of all, how stirring the demonstration of God's ability. How stirring the demonstration of God's ability. Again, when I think about this question, what is so amazing about the question is that this question is asked in light of everything God had done for the people that is asking the question. Verse 3, and you can glance back there, speaks of those that had heard of God's ability. It speaks of those that had known God's ability. Or to put it another way, there were those that had seen God's ability. 
They had seen wonderful examples of God's ability. They had seen wonderful demonstrations of the ability of God. You notice verse 12 of Psalm 78. Look at verse 12. The Bible said in Psalm 78, 12, Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers. They saw these marvelous things. But you'll notice there, he talks about in the land of Egypt and in the field of Zoan. They saw these marvelous examples of the ability of God. The field of Zoan was the name of a city in Egypt where Pharaoh was holding court at the time of his various interviews with Moses and Aaron. You're familiar with the story. How Moses and Aaron appeared before Pharaoh with the rod and turned to separate different things. That was in the field of Zoan. And in verse 12, it reminds us that in Egypt, that God did some wonderful things for the children of Israel. That in Egypt, they saw marvelous demonstrations of God's ability. That word marvelous there simply defines or describes that which is miraculous. They saw miraculous things. They saw marvelous things. They saw things that left them filled with wonder and awe. Look at verse 13 and following. You find in verse 13 that there are a few examples of the ability of God they had seen that is given there. Notice these examples, and let's look at them for just a moment. You notice, first of all, in verse 13, there was a demonstration of God's power. There was a demonstration of God's power. Look at verse 13 of Psalm 78. Psalm 78, 13, we read, He, referring to God, divided the sea and caused them, the children of Israel, to pass through that sea, and He made the waters to stand as a heap. Now, the psalmist in verse 13 is taking us back to the night when God delivered the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage. You're familiar with the story. You know about the story. I think about a little boy I read about one time that came home from church one Sunday morning, and his mother said to them, what did you learn in Sunday school today? And he said, we learned about Moses crossing the Red Sea. And the mother said, well, what did you learn about Moses crossing the Red Sea? And the little boy said, we learned that Moses went behind the enemy lines, and he freed the children of Israel. And then he took his army engineers, and he built a pontoon bridge across the Red Sea. And then when the Egyptian tank division started across the bridge, he called in his dive bombers, and they blew them to bits. Well, his mother looked at him somewhat surprised, and she said, Is that what your Sunday school teacher is teaching you? And the little boy dropped his head and then said, No, Mom. But if I told you what she was teaching us, you would, there's no way you would believe it. Well, let me say to you this morning, we may, there may be a few in this age that are skeptical and have a hard time believing the story of Israel's deliverance and the crossing of the Red Sea. But I want to remind you this morning that it was a great demonstration of God's power. For example, let me just point out a few things to you here about this demonstration of God's power. You notice our text, Psalm 78, 13. The psalmist said that he divided the sea. The psalmist describes the division of the sea. Now, the children of Israel found themselves trapped in a sort of geographical cul-de-sac. They were camped by the Red Sea. The army of Pharaoh was coming up behind them, and the terrain around them prohibited their escape. On either side were these rugged mountains. In front of them was the Red Sea. Behind them was Pharaoh's army. So they were trapped. Exodus chapter 14 tells us that when the children of Israel saw the army of Pharaoh approaching, that their hearts were filled with fear. And they even said to Moses, Hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
They said it was rough in Egypt, but at least we're alive. Now you brought us out here in the middle of nowhere, and we're all going to perish. But I like what Moses said to the people. He said to them, fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. And I love this. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, ye shall see them again no more. Moses said, you're worried about these Egyptians. You just stand here and watch. You're about to get your last glimpse of them. And the Bible tells us how Moses walked to the edge of the Red Sea. In fact, I want you to look at Exodus chapter 14, 21. I believe I have it on the screen. Exodus 14, 21, look at this. The Bible said that Moses walked to the edge of the Red Sea, and he took the rod in his hand, lifted the same rod, lifted that rod, a rod that was in his hand, and then stretched it out over the sea. And the Bible said, the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Now look at that verse for just a moment. The Bible tells us that when Moses stretched out his arm, had that rod in his hand, stretched out his arm, the Bible said that a strong wind from the east began blowing, causing the waters to divide. Now I confess to you, I have never really paid a lot of attention to that strong east wind. And I don't remember even reading much about it. And all the books I've read on this matter and whatever and all of my reading, I can't recall anybody ever saying a whole lot about the matter. And maybe they just mention it, but they really don't comment on it. And I don't know if anybody they even mentioned it. And again, I have never really thought about it. But I got to thinking about this week. In fact, I was talking to Aaron about it the other day as we were going down the road. I got to thinking about this strong east wind. It says that the Lord used a strong east wind to drive back the waters. Look at the word strong there. The word that is used there is a word that speaks of a vehement wind. It is a word that describes something that is harsh, something that is rough. It is something that is fierce. You see, when the Bible describes this strong east wind, it's, it's, it's speaking of more than a soft breeze gently blowing on your cheek. What he's describing here in my, in just everyday language, he's talking about a tree bender, folks. He's talking about a hurricane strength wind. But Exodus 14, 21 tells us that God caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. Now, that would suggest to me, if I'm reading correctly, that this hurricane strength wind kept blowing all night long in order to hold the waters back. That's the impression I get. If that is the case, then you think with me just a moment. Then the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea in that kind of wind. They crossed the Red Sea with this hurricane strength wind blowing. Now that makes it even more a supernatural event than some kind of natural phenomenon because a person could not even stand on their feet, much less walk in that kind of wind. But yet that's exactly what happened. In fact, I remember hearing a preacher one time preaching about them crossing over on dry ground. You know, the Bible tells us that when God parted the water, in fact, Psalm 7, 8, 13, they crossed over on dry ground, that when God parted the Red Sea, that when the waters were parted, the seabed was not muck, mud, and mire, as would normally be the case, but was dry ground. And the implication is that immediately when the waters departed, it was dry ground. If you went out here today and you stopped the flow of water over the Chickamauga Dam so that the Tennessee River that flows through our city dried up, 
then when it stopped flowing, you'd have nothing but a mud bed out there. It'd be impossible to walk across it. You'd be up to mud to your waist, probably up to your eyebrows. In fact, I could recommend a few to try and say amen right there. But you'd be in mud up to your waist. It would take weeks, maybe months for it to ever dry out. But the Bible said they crossed over on dry ground. Again, the implication being that when the waters parted, the ground was dry. But this preacher is preaching about this dry ground. And I love the way he described it. He said he believed that when they crossed over on dry ground, that they were kicking up dust as they went along. Well, I look at this strong east wind, and may I put it this way? If they were kicking up dust on dry ground, and they were going across in hurricane-strength winds, I don't even believe it, believe it messed up their hair. Can I get an amen right there? I believe they were saying, boy, this breeze feels good after these long, hot Egyptian nights. But the wind, it could stop the sea, but it could not stop the saint of God or the people of God. But look at Psalm 70, 13 again. Notice this. It tells us that God made the waters to stand as a heap. Now, this strong east wind formed, you might say, an invisible dam making the waters flowing down to suddenly stop and then begin piling up in this large heap. But not just that. Exodus 14, 22 tells us that the waters formed a wall on their right and that the waters formed a wall on their left. It was more than God just cutting the water source off and then letting it dry up. No, what God did is he cut a path right through the middle of the thing. And he cut a path with his strong east wind, leaving a wall on this side and leaving a wall on this side. I, this week, I did a little research on the Red Sea. Got thinking about how they crossed, where they crossed, and what it was like. But I found in my research that the maximum width of the Red Sea is 220 miles. And the maximum depth of the Red Sea is 9,970 feet. Now, we know they did not cross in the middle. They did not cross at its maximum width or its maximum depth. We know that. But uh, think about where they did cross. And there's some disagreement. Some believe that they cross uh, through the Gulf of Suez. And some believe they cross at what is called the Sea of Reeds, a shallow marshland portion of the Red Sea. But my opinion, and I'm not getting the reasons why this morning. I don't want to get into that. But I believe they cross at the Gulf of Aqaba, which is another Norman, uh, northern arm of the Red Sea. And at the point where I believe they cross, it would have been eight miles across the Red Sea. And at that point, the Red Sea gently angles at six degrees underwater until about midway across the sea, it reaches a depth of 1,000 feet, and then it begins to gradually rise to the opposite shore. This would mean that when the children of Israel reached the midway point of the Red Sea, there was a wall on their right of water 1,000 feet high. And on their left, there was a wall of water 1,000 feet high. That's about as far from where I'm standing down in the Clifton Hill School. Now, can you imagine a wall of water on each side that high? I bet those little kids felt like they were going through the world's largest aquarium. In fact, I can see one little boy said. Daddy, look at that fish going by there. But can you imagine it? God parted the Red Sea, and the Bible said they passed through. Are you listening to me? Would you not say that that is a God that has ability that can take a Red Sea and cut it right down the middle and let the children of Israel cross over? 
they passed through and came out on the other side singing, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises and doing wonders? They saw a demonstration of God's power. But look at something else. Not only did they see a demonstration of God's power, but they also saw and all the night with the light of fire. We read in Exodus 13, 21, the Lord went before them. He went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud. He went before them by night in a pillar of fire. The Bible tells us that above the camp of Israel, when they were moving, it was in front of them. When they were camped, it was hovering above them. And the Bible tells us in the daytime, there was a cloud. And in the nighttime, there was a fire. But it also tells us that the Lord was in that cloud and the Lord was in that fire. In other words, they had a visible example and a visible demonstration of the presence of God. They never had to doubt whether God was with them. They never had to doubt that the presence of God was with them. All they had to do was look up day by day, night after night, every day for 40 years. They were witnesses of the presence of God. It was a demonstration of God's presence. But look also, they also had a demonstration or saw a demonstration of God's provision. Look at verse 15. Not only did they see a demonstration of His power, and not only did they see a demonstration of His presence, but they also saw a demonstration of His provision. Verse 15 said, He claved the rocks in the wilderness. And gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock. And he caused waters to run down like rivers. Now the event that is being referred to is found in Exodus chapter 17. And it's a story of something that occurred shortly after they crossed the Red Sea. The Bible describes in Exodus 17 that they were in a place called Rephidim. And the Bible said, and there was no water for the people to drink. So they got thirsty. And when they got thirsty, they began to murmur. And they began to complain. And then Moses did what everybody should do when there's a need in their life. He went to the Lord in prayer. And when he went to the Lord in prayer, God told him to take the rod, the same rod that had stretched out over the Red Sea, and to smite the rock and Horeb. And Moses followed the instructions of God, and when he did so, water came gushing out of the rock. I was reading something just this week that blessed my heart. I was reading on how on the western side of the Horeb Range, there is a hill that's 110 feet high. On the top of this hill is a large rock that is about the size of a five-story building. And this rock is split through the middle, and the, rock, the split is large enough for an individual to walk through. And studies of the hill show water erosion channels that come from the top of the hill starting where the rock is split. And there is evidence that numerous streams came forth in several directions and continued out in the plain below. But what is interesting is that there is no water anywhere in that region and they can't figure out where the water come from. Well, I know where the water come from. Can I get amen? And it doesn't surprise me for Psalm 78 said that he caused the waters to run down like rivers. When they needed water, you know what God did for them? He provided them water out of a rock. Look at Psalm 78 verse 24. You have other examples and I just comment on them. 
Verse 24 said God rained down manna upon them to eat. Every morning when they got up, there was manna on the ground. They were every morning when they got up, God provided lunch, provided food for them, manna on the ground. It's been calculated to feed the children of Israel. There would have need to have been two million gallons of manna to fall on the ground every morning. Verse 27, 28, he rained flesh also upon them as dust and feathered fowls like the sand of the sea. And he let it fall in the midst of their camp, round about their habitations. In the morning time, God sent manna. But you know what he did in the afternoon? He sent them in quail. And the Bible said they flew into camp. They didn't have a hunting party to go out and find these quails. I mean, God delivered them right to the front door. I could imagine some fella saying, Honey, it's time to get ready for supper. She gets out her frying pan, goes outside the tent door to the little hearth where she fixes her food, and she lays an empty pan there, and about five minutes later, plop, big old quail falls right down the frying pan. God sent it right to their door. It's been calculated that if you figure one quail, to each family of five, it would have required 750,000 quail to fly into camp every afternoon. Verse 29 said, for they did eat and were well filled. It was not just a case of getting by. They went to bed every night with their tummy full. They were well filled. What they saw and what they experienced was a demonstration of God's ability. They saw God's power. They saw God's presence, and they saw God's provision. I say unto you, how stirring, how stirring the demonstration of God's ability they experience. If I ever get to feeling a little bit down, and ever get to be in a, feeling a little weak in my faith, all I've got to do is go to Psalm 78 or some other place in the Bible and begin to read of how God did this and how God did that. And it's not long that the joy bells start ringing down in my heart. And it stirs me to see what God could do for them. Don't it stir you? Don't it stir you that God could part a Red Sea? Don't it stir you that God could split a rock and provide water? Don't it stir you that God could send in man in the morning and quail in the afternoon? Don't it stir you when you hear about what God has done? It's a stirring thing. I think about everything that's going on around here. And there's a lot of things going on, exciting things. And I know that you are not seeing a whole lot right now. There's not a lot of tangible results that are, big, uh, that, are over, that are in front of you. But I assure you, a lot of things are going on. A lot of things are going on. And I mentioned a while ago, we're working on parking lots. We've got civil engineer that is working to draw up parking lots and working to help us with uh, zoning and variances and, and all of these different things. I've been meeting with our church design consultant and architect about once every two weeks. And we've been meeting working on this and working on that. And we're getting all these things together. And it's exciting. There's a lot of things going on. And you're going to be able to see, begin to see some of it here in just a matter of weeks. So don't ever think nothing's happening. There's a lot of things that are going on. But I'll be honest with you. Sometimes it can get just a bit overwhelming to me. I'm just a little country preacher. And sometimes when I begin to think about everything that is happening, and I begin to think about everything that is going on, I think about all the things that have to, have to happen. I think about the thousands of dollars that have to be raised. I think about loans that have to be obtained. I think about property that has to be obtained. I think about all these things. I think about how somewhere at some point we're going to have to make some major changes in what we do in here. 
and I get to thinking about all of this, and sometimes it's a little, it's a bit overwhelming. And sometimes it's challenging to our faith, and sometimes it stretches my faith. Just this past week, Aaron and I, we met with our church consultant designer and architect in Anderson, South Carolina. And we met at a Cracker Barrel. We met halfway. They're from Charlotte, so we met halfway. And we went in. He was, we've been meeting about once every week and working on different things. And up to this point, we'd only just looked at various and worked on various aspects of the building. Size and dimensions, lower level, main seating level, upper level, uh, platform, hallways, lobby, uh, sound booth, TV room, video room, exterior, and all these kind of things. And each time we meet, we'd work on this specific thing, this specific thing, and this specific thing. But this past Friday was the first time that I saw them all together on paper. And we were sitting there at the Cracker Brown. He rolled those plans out. Listen, I almost jumped up and slung meatloaf all over Cracker Barrel. In fact, I felt like just making three laps around the building, stop and get me a sip of tea, and then make three more laps. It's exciting, wasn't it, Aaron? Stand up and tell them how excited you are about it. I mean, it's exciting. We both had a spell, amen? Oh, it's great. It was. But I, if you'd been with me, you'd have carried me around Cracker Barrel. But it looked good. I mean, it's exciting. But again, I get to thinking about all the money that has to be raised, loans that have to be obtained, budgets that have to be expanded, offerings that have to increase, changes that have to be made, and sometimes my faith is stretched. But then I get to thinking, God one day divided the Red Sea. And God parted the waters. And if God could divide a Red Sea and leave a wall 1,000 foot on either side, take them through on dry ground in hurricane strength weather and bring them out on the other side singing instead of pouting, and if God could split a rock down the middle and bring water out of it, then I'm not going around saying, can God? I'm going around shouting, God can. God can. You believe that today? Say amen. We're not serving a Mickey Mouse God. We're serving a God that can. Can I get an amen right there? God can. But here they were. You have these wonderful, wonderful demonstrations of the power of God. But look at the second thing. Not only I want you to think with me how stirring the demonstration of God's ability, but think about how surprising the doubt of God's ability. Now think about this. In light of everything I have just described, God had brought them out of Egypt, parted a Red Sea, took them across the Red Sea, provided water where there was no water, and met their every need day in and day out, every day, twice a day, 40 days a year. In spite of all of that, when you come to Psalm 78 and verse 19, they're saying, can God, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Now, I confess to you, when I read that, it leaves me speechless. I mean, I am left feeling absolutely dumbfounded. It's like when you read verse 13, boy, you get cranked up. And you read verse 14, and you get even more cranked up. And verse 15 and 16 has you just about running. And then all of a sudden, you have the same crowd saying, Can God furnish a table? It's almost like you want to get over and get your seat and sit down and say, What in the world is going on? It leaves you dumbfounded. It leaves you speechless. You want you want you ask you think to yourself, how can you ask, can God, when you ought to be saying God can? Look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. Psalm 78, 22. The Bible said they believe not in God. 
The Bible said in verse 22, they trusted not in God. When they asked the question, can God furnish a table in the wilderness, it revealed their lack of faith in God. It revealed their unbelief. It revealed the fact they were not believing God nor trusting God. They were doubting the ability of God. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Think with me about their doubt and unbelief for just a moment. Think with me. Notice first of all, and think with me first of all, how defamatory their unbelief. Look at verse 19. They spake. Look at verse 19. They said. You find them verbalizing their unbelief. And notice carefully that they spake against God. Now look at that. They spake against God. They slandered God in their words. In other words, when they asked God that question, it was a slap in the face of God. To ask such a question of God, one whose ability was so manifested and one that was God so manifestly God, to ask him that kind of question was slander. It was like spitting in the very face of God. Had God not provided furnished a table for, for, for them in the wilderness before? Sure he had. We just looked at that. We just talked about it. Now how in the world can they now be saying, can God furnish a table? The evidence is in front of them. All they got to do is look up. There's the evidence. All they got to do is look around. There's the evidence. But here they are saying, God, can you furnish a table in the wilderness? They spake against God. It was nothing short of slander. How defamatory their unbelief. But notice second of all, how deprecatory their unbelief. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. Behold, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out. And the streams overflowed. Now notice, they're questioning God again. Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? Now look in verse 20. They're not denying what God has done. But what they're insinuating in the follow-up questions is that they were things that were beyond his ability. They said, you gave us water, but can you furnish a table in the wilderness? Can you do this? They were insinuating that God has done things and could do certain things, but they were things maybe he could not do. They were belittling the ability of God. Now listen, if it's not bad enough that they even question the ability of God, to even insinuate there was something he could not do is even worse. And when I read what they ask, this, this is what I find myself asking. What is the matter with you? I mean, I like I want to grab one of those children of Israelites by uh, the, uh, their headpiece or by their collar or something and just grab them and say, what is the matter with you? Are you stupid? Are you blind? Look what God's done for you. Look at the Red Sea. Look at Rephidim. Look at the manna. And I'm sure when they ask the question, they're munching on manna and holding a quail sandwich in their hand at the same time. And they're saying, can God, Lord, we don't know if you can do this. I want to say to them, how can you question the ability of God? How can you even think that God is limited in what he can do? I want you to listen to me this morning. I want you to listen to me this morning. I want you, are you listening? I want you to listen to this preach. I want you to listen to what I've got to say. I want you to listen to me very, very carefully. I want to say something to you. I want to give you three words. I want you to get this. God is able. 
Are you listening to me? I want you to understand something this morning, that there is no limit in God's ability. I want you to listen this morning, and I want to remind you that there is nothing too hard for the Lord. That with God, nothing shall be impossible. You do not have to wonder if God can furnish a table in the wilderness. I want you to know that my God is able. In fact, look at Ephesians 3.20. I put it on the screen for you, I think. Ephesians 3.20. Look at it. He said, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. And that one verse Paul piles phrase upon phrase in an attempt to adequately describe the ability of God. In fact, it has often been called a pyramid progression of God's ability. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at the verse. The first thing you see is that God is. You don't have to wonder about God. There is a God. He exists. But you not only see that God is, but you see that God is able. He not only exists, but He's a powerful God. He is a God that is able. Thirdly, you see that God is able to do. He is not only a God of ability, but He has the ability to do certain things. And fourthly, He is able to do exceedingly. He is not only able to do, but he's able to do exceeding. That is, he's able to do great and mighty things. And fifthly, we see that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly. He is not only able to do great and mighty things, but he even has the ability to do things even greater than great and mighty things. And sixthly, he's not only able to do exceedingly abundantly, but he's able to do it exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. In other words, you can't even begin to imagine anything God couldn't do. You can't even think up of something that'll stump God. You can't even begin to picture or imagine or come up with something in your mind that would even stretch the ability of God. I'm telling you today, there is no limit to God. God is able. And because he's able, there's no problem he can't solve. There's no promise he can't keep. There is no prayer he can't answer, and there is no person he can't save. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Can I give you a trivet translation of it? You bet your britches. Amen? God can furnish a table in the wilderness. Hey, listen to me. I know in our case this morning, we've never seen him part of Red Sea. I've never seen him part of Red Sea. I've never seen him split a rock. I've hit a few rocks, but I've never had water come out of them. Sherry's drove into a few before, but they never had water come out of them. Except out of the radiator, say amen right there. But I've never had God part a Red Sea. I've never had him split a rock, bring water out of it. In our case, we've never seen that. But every one of us today has seen enough to know and to leave us with the assurance that God can and not can God. Every one of us has seen God do enough in this place here on the corner of 3200 Rossville Boulevard. We've seen enough through the years that should cause us never to wonder, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? We ought to be running around holding hands, shouting, oh, yes, he can. Oh, yes, he can. God can. We've seen enough. I think about my own life. I hadn't told this story in a long time, but I thought about it when I was thinking about this. But I remember when I pastored my first church. And I went full-time in what was a part-time church. And it was a small church. And they were paying me so much a week, they couldn't pay me anymore. And, and they had no more to give me. It was a part-time church, but I felt like God wanted me to go full-time. And so I quit my job and began living on the small salary they gave me. 
And I was as happy as I could be. I was right in the middle of the will of God. I was going to school, trying to finish, trying to, I was going to school at the time. I had a wife and I had a baby. Tim was about six, seven, eight months old at the time. And on top of that, I had all the other bills that you normally have. I had rent, light bills, all food, groceries, all, had all of those things. But I went full time on that little salary they gave me. I listen, I could spend the rest of this service just telling you thing, one thing after another, how God proved himself. But I think about it, one of the things I've been always enjoyed telling through the years. I remember one night, I had a little, uh, I was getting ready to go to church. It's Sunday afternoons, getting ready to go to church. Had a little 1970 Volkswagen Beetle. Best car I ever had. You'd burn up in the summertime. Had those little heaters on the side. You remember those? And had these little vents in the back. I'd wire them open in the summer, in the, in the wintertime and wire them shut in the summertime. You'd burn up. Freeze in the wintertime, burn up in the summertime. But listen, you could put 4 or $5 in that little car and drive all week long. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. The harder you drove it, I mean, the better it was. The only time, the only time that I ever got mad in my life, the only time I ever got mad in my life, it's true, the only time. <laughs> the motor was in the back. I'm confessing sins this morning. God brought it up so I could confess it. I had the motors in the back. You remember? I had these little, little old hoods on the front of it. And they wasn't nothing but sheet metal. And I remember somewhere, it was back it was in North Carolina, I was driving that thing up, and uh, we ran out of gas. And, I, and I, we ran out of gas, and I got in there and was trying to push it out of the road. And I was in the front of it, and Sherry let it roll back on me. And it rolled back on me in the snow drift. So here I am pinned between the car and the snow drift. So I got mad at her for not stopping the car. And one of the few sins I've ever committed, I took my fist and came down, hit the hood of the car. When I did, the chrome went boing, and the hood just collapsed and went inside. But we started, I was passing this church, had this little Volkswagen, and that was the only time I ever got mad in my life. But anyway, say amen. But I started pastoring there. We got ready to go to church. Like I said, you could put $5 in and run all week long. But Volkswagen is like anything else. It wouldn't run if you didn't have gas in it. And that car was on empty. As we would say in North Carolina where I'm from, it was slap on empty. I mean, it was empty. The only problem was you said, why didn't you stop at the gas station and get gas? I didn't have a dollar to my name. I was as broke as a convict. But we did something, or I did something. That uh, I, What I did, got ready to go, it was time to get ready to go to church. So I went through every pair of pants I had. I went through every suit I had. I went through Timmy's piggy bank. Bless the little youngest heart. Never had anything for the first 12 years of his life. <laughs> I lifted the cushions on the couch. I looked under the couch. Anywhere I thought I could find money. And God is my witness. I came up with a grand total of 27 cents. I put that, it's mostly, I think it's a nickel, pennies, maybe a dime or two, whatever there. I put it in my pocket, and we got in the car, prayed and asked the Lord to help us get to the gas station, whatever. So we're going to church, whatever. There was one gas station between where we lived and where I pastored. I went right by it. Zoom, went right by it. Sherry said, uh, aren't you going to stop getting the gas? I said something about how I was late or I need to get to church early and whatever like that. The problem was I could not bring my, I was embarrassed to pull in there and ask for 27 cent worth of gas. That was before self-service stations. If it had been self-service, I could have got out a gas can and acted like I was getting gas for the lawnmower, you know, something like that. 
But that didn't, you didn't have self-serve. So I went on the church. And I, I thought, I'll go to church. God's going to meet our needs. He's met our needs time and time and time again. And I thought, he'll meet our needs. Somebody will walk up to me, take me by the hand, shake my hand, and, and leave 5 or a $10 bill in my hand, say, I love you, preaching, whatever. Like I said, God will meet our needs, honest for the Lord. I bet I shook hands with everybody in that church four times that <laughs> night and still didn't have but 27 cents. Church was over, got ready to go. I stood out on the steps of the front porch and watched the taillights of the last car go out of sight. Sherry said, we better go. I said, no, we'll just wait a minute. Because I thought, somebody will get down the road. They'll get down here at the end of East Reed Road. God will get a hold of their heart. They'll have to turn around. They'll come back up here. And they'll say, preacher, I couldn't go home. I brought you this $5. About 20 minutes later, I decided we better start home. So we got in the car, and we prayed. We asked the Lord to get us to the gas station. I pulled into that little gas station between the church and the house. This little old fella came bebopping out the door, walked up to our car, and he said, Fill it up! <laughs> I, rolled, I had the window roll down about two inches. I said, Give me 27 cents, please. He said, I didn't catch that. Now, I laugh about it now, seriously. But I promise you, it wasn't exciting back then. We were sitting there. And all God knew that's all we had to our name till Wednesday when we got paid. Was those 20, 27 cents. That's all we had as far as money was concerned. But I had a book. And I had a book that had promises in it that my God yeah. shall supply all of your riches, need according to his riches and glory. I had a book that told me that if I'd be in the will of God and I'd honor God and serve God, he'd meet my needs. That's all I had in 27 cents. But while he was sitting there and he was pumping 27 cents worth of gas in my car, another car pulled up on the other side of the pump. Fella got out, looked at me. I saw him as one of my church members. He turned to the fella and said, that's my preacher. I hadn't done anything for him in a while. Fill it up. I'll pay for it. Now listen to me. Oh, there's no reason for any of us saying, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? We ought to be running around saying, God can, God can, God can, God can. He's done enough to assure us that God has the ability to work in our lives. Can I get an amen there? It is God can. We don't have to doubt his ability. We don't have to doubt what God could do. A third and a final thing, and I give you this and I'm going to close. Just Let me just give you the point. Not only how stirring the demonstration of his ability and how surprising the doubt of his ability, but how serious the disclosure of God's ability. You don't think it's serious? Verses, look at verse 3 and 4. Look at this. And then we'll just, I'll give you the points I'm on through. But you'll notice verse 3 and 4, they always have always spoken in my heart. Look at verse 3, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. Now look at this. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. You know, in other words, what he tells us in verse 3 and 4, it's not enough for us to talk about what he has done. It's not enough to talk about what he can do. He says we will not hide them from our children. We will show the generation to come. In other words, he's telling us 
that we are to be a living example of God's ability. In other words, Temple Baptist Church, all these teenagers and young adults that filled the stage a while ago, mom and dad, I want you to listen to me this morning. We're to do more than get up in service and shout about what God can do. We are to see to it that it's not what he has done, but it's what he is doing. So that every kid sitting around here, it's not stories of what God can do. It is reality. They see what God can do. They see God working in our life. They see God moving in our life. They see God meeting our needs. They see God proving himself to be God. It's not just talking about what he can do. It is showing to the next generation what God can do. Now that's serious. For you look at it, verse 21, you see that God's wrath was kindled because of their unbelief. God's wrath was kindled. And you see in verse 40. Four, verse 41, that not only was his wrath kindled, but his work was hindered. They limited the Holy One of God. Now listen to me. Look up here, and I'm through. Do you believe God is God? Do you believe that God is able to do great and mighty things? Do you believe that this generation needs to see how big God is? Do you believe that this generation needs to see a demonstration of the ability of God? Do you believe that? Do you believe God can furnish a table in the wilderness? then what God is saying is, let me be God in your life. Let me do in your life. Let me work in your life. Don't question my ability. Just let me be God. Let me show you what I can do. Just give yourself to me. Make yourself available to me. Just open your life up to me, and I will prove myself to be God in your life. On these days, we'll march out of this building, and we'll march right over there to another building. And when we march in there, we'll march in there singing victoriously, giving praise to God because if it ever happens, it'll be God showing himself. And I want to show these little boys and girls in children's chapel, we're not talking about a fairy tale God. We're talking about a God that can do miracles, a God that can supply needs, a God that can do wonderful things. I want to tell this generation, he's not dead. It's not can he furnish a table in the wilderness. God can furnish a table in the wilderness. Let's stand to our feet, please.